Well, today's Mother's Day, and it's a day to remember God's grace, really. Providing not only the church, but the world with, uh, with mothers. And men, you should note that Mother's Day comes before Father's Day, so you're probably being tested right now. The gifts that you're going to give, and I think I give this list every year, and I do because we're so dense, okay? It's a helpful list of what not to buy, not to buy. Number one, don't buy clothing that involves sizes. If it's too small, she'll think you don't pay attention. If it's too big, well, you'll be in trouble if it's too big, okay? Don't buy jewelry. The jewelry your wife wants, you can't afford, and the jewelry you can afford, she doesn't want. Three guys just ran out the back to exchange their present, right? Last but not least, don't buy anything that involves weight loss or self-improvement. A treadmill is not a good present for Mother's Day. All right? I mean, in reality, there's, there's no gift that's sufficient to compensate uh, for the work that, that they do. Mothers are an amazing thing to behold. I heard over and over the favorite line from the TCS Honk production was when Bailey, the father, just rolls in and says, Hello, kids, I'm your dad, you know. They already knew who the mom was. Um, The dad just kind of rolls in after the mom has been doing all of the work. Did you know a mother will change 7,300 diapers before the baby's second birthday? Her diaper changing speed is 2 minutes and 5 seconds. And that adds up to three 40-hour work weeks each year just in diaper changing. Now just for trivia, a dad's time is 1 minute and 36 seconds. And obviously they're quicker because they take less care. If you don't believe me, you've changed a baby after dad's changed it the last time, right? I mean, you know that there's a big difference. A child prior to kindergarten, I found this statistic, a child prior to kindergarten requires a mom's attention once every four minutes. And then whoever came up with the statistic said, or 210 times a day. I thought, that sounds... Something's not right there. Once every four minutes, and 210 times sounds, sounds too little. So, so I did the calculation, and, and that was assuming 10 hours of sleep. Ten, 210 times every four minutes assumed 10 hours of sleep. It must have been a man that came up with that calculation. I mean, there's, I mean what mother gets seven hours of sleep a night? If it was seven hours of sleep a night, it would be about 255 times. Uh, have you ever counted... How many times a kid says, Mom, 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 Mom? I mean, it's over and over and and over. On top of that, she'll wash 330 loads of laundry. That's 5,300 articles of clothing each year. MSN did a study about the monetary value of assigning a salary if all of the jobs that a mother did were added up, and it was over $140,000 a year. And you know the value. Um, God knows the value. The fifth commandment, what is inscripturated as the, the eternal law of God, the crystallization of God's law is, is honor thy father and mother so it will be well with you and that you may live long upon the earth. 
And he commands that we give honor to mothers, not just one day a year, but, but every day and for a lifetime. It, it's, it's not only one of the Ten Commandments, it's, it's the only one that relates to family. Now, family is very important. But you have one commandment that's specifically related to family out of ten, and, and it's because if this principle is kept in the family unit, then everything operates properly. That's the reason there's blessing that's promised in life. If a child learns how to honor the authority that God's placed over them, they'll, they'll learn to honor God. And that's where they learn to, to honor God. They learn to obey parental authority, then, then they'll learn how to function under the various authorities through, throughout life. On the other hand, a child that doesn't learn honor and obedience and respect for authority will struggle the rest of, of their, their lives. That's why the commandment, as I said, has a promise. And it's significant whenever you think about it. So one of the pillars of God's everlasting law is honor your mother. And children don't always make that easy, do they? Um, a mother of three unruly children was asked whether or not she'd have children again, and she had it to do over, and she replied, yes, but not the same ones. I can really think of few tasks that are more challenging, difficult, time-consuming, mentally rigorous, and rewarding as, as being a mother. It's hard work and so eternally valuable. Even ungodly rulers understand this. I could quote many of our founders speaking about their mothers. But I'll quote Napoleon, not your, your stalwart of godliness. He said, let France have great mothers and France will have great sons. Ungodly rulers understand the value and, and even when mothers are ungodly, the instinct, still so strong it it surfaces. This past week we we had a, a little cookout with, with Boaz and I was talking to one of the folks there about this passage and I haven't been able to get it out of my mind ever since. So I decided to preach it this morning. It's in First Kings chapter three. So I want you to open your Bibles there and we're going to take a fresh look at this familiar passage about the power of motherhood. First Kings chapter three. I can remember preaching this passage many years ago, and I can remember Brother Paul Phelps coming up to me after the service saying, Brother, when you started a passage about prostitutes on Mother's Day, I thought this guy is in trouble. But then, wow, I could see where you're going. So if you're like Brother Paul, hang on, it's coming as we work through this passage. It's the story of Solomon and his wise judgment. In the context in which you, you learn about his wisdom comes with, with two mothers. It's, it's a passage that illustrates the wisdom that God gave to Solomon, but the circumstances that God chooses to use to prove that he's given wisdom to Solomon, I find it's, it's very interesting. Now, you understand that I mean everybody knows here would agree the Bible is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. It's inspired. And, and that inspiration came through human beings and, and the Holy Spirit superintended so that we would have the, the Word of God. But, but it's always fascinating to me to see how the Holy Spirit weaves the story together. So here you have Solomon, who's going to become king of Israel. 
And we're going to go into his prayer closet and hear about him asking the Lord for, for wisdom. And then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of 1 Kings tells a story to illustrate, to prove. And the story that he uses is about two prostitutes. I mean, he could have used any story to prove that God actually gave Solomon the wisdom. But, but this is the story that the Holy Spirit chose. What would you use? This is the first confirmation to Israel that God's answered Solomon's prayer, and that Solomon will lead the kingdom well. I mean, what, what would you choose to illustrate the ability to lead a kingdom? Or if a person had wisdom enough to do it, great accomplishments, maybe a, maybe a, a degree on the wall, a highly prestigious university. God chooses Solomon's ability to discern good and evil in motherhood. It's a really strange and ungodly circumstances. So, let's read 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. It says, Now two women, who were harlots, came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. And it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together. No one was with us in the house. That's key. Except the two of us in the house. Notice how the writer emphasizes that. And this woman's son died in the night, and she lay on him. So she rose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, he was there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. And the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son. The dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. It's pretty simple to understand. There are two harlots here. A judgment concerning a living baby and one that's died is, is being requested. And again, if you want to see the context, you look back at verse 6. Solomon said, this is to the Lord, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued with him and you have given him a son to sit on his throne. And then, as I said, you get to listen to Solomon in his prayer closet. And we're told Solomon loved the Lord and he, he walked in the ways of his father David. And, and after a time of worship at Gibeon, the Lord appears to Solomon and, and says, Tell me, ask of me, whatever you desire and, and it will be yours. And Solomon answers and asks for wisdom. And he ties it specifically to the fact that he's going to be leading God's people. Look at verse 9. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Not only great in number, but they're great because they're God's people. What a, what a challenging and awesome task. And what Solomon asks pleases the Lord and God answers his prayer in verses 10 through 15. And then immediately, in verse 16, you see this little word, now two women who were harlots 
came to the king. I mean, like you go from the prayer closet to God's being pleased with Solomon to the throne room with, with two harlots standing there. It's a very difficult situation. No one knows the truth. That was what was emphasized. There were only two there, the two harlots and the babies, and the babies obviously can't give testimony. They'd both born children from their profession, three days apart. No husband, no witnesses. They were living together, remaining in their trade, and in the middle of the night, one of them rolls over and smothers the, the child. Ladies, um, here you have a, a picture of, of two women that, that are in motherhood, but are in some pretty trying and difficult circumstances, sinful circumstances. And they're living together, and the mother of the dead child switches the baby to the horror of the mother of the living child, and there arises a dispute as to how to solve the dilemma. And they're both claiming the child. And Deuteronomy 19.15 can't be, be practiced, it can't be followed, because there's no second witness. So in those cases... You appear before the king. That's how they came, before Solomon, the highest court of appeal. And he has a case that's impossible to prove. I mean, only divine wisdom, discernment given from God, rightly applied, is, is capable to, to discernment. So Solomon's got to decipher the situation. And what I find is interesting it is not only that he has... The, the wisdom to pull out the sword, but long before he pulls out the sword to flush out the phony, you see some indicators of the real mother. And I think Solomon sees that. So if you want an outline, it's four indicators that demonstrate the heart of a true mother. And the first, I think you see here, is the willingness to risk their safety for their child. I mean, the true mother here puts preserving her life, preserving the life of her child ahead of preserving her own. I mean, look at verse 16. Two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. Now, it wouldn't be odd for two harlots to stand before the king, but it would be in judgment. It would not be a friendly request to solve a, a dispute. I mean, here are two women... Their profession is sinful, punishable by death possibly, and there's evidence, and they're bringing the evidence. And the evidence is a child. There's no husband that's there. And they come before the king, and in doing so, they put their very life on the line. This was not the type of person who should expect by help by coming before the king, but, but they come anyway. I think the very fact that, that Solomon allowed them to come is a picture of the kindness of, of God and, and that the lowest of sinners can come to Him for, for help. You're never too low, you're never too sinful to come to the throne of grace, right? Sin does horrible things to people. Here's a really horrible situation. You read stories, you probably know people. Some of you minister in places where... where Men and women will sell their children just to get high. They'll neglect them for other relationships or 
sacrifice everything for, for themselves. But here's an example where even a harlot, a woman who cared little for herself, cared enough for her child to put her life on the line to settle it. I mean, think about it. I mean, she could have just said, well, okay, I, mean, I really don't want the baby anyway. That's going get to in, get in the way of me making money. But, but she pushes the issue, and she pushes the issue all the way to the point where she's standing before the king of Israel that could bring judgment down upon her, and she is wanting the baby. The other woman also comes, though. One's good, one's evil. So what's, what's her motive? It's a contrast. I mean, just as the one comes to, to preserve the child, to have the child, this other woman comes, she's driven out of selfishness and jealousy. I mean, that was stronger than her grief for even her dead child. What does she do immediately that she, when she finds out that, that her child dies? She, she tries to, to take the other baby. And you know from the context that it's not because she wanted a baby, because she's willing to allow it to be cut in half. I mean, her heart is revealed. She thought of her needs and herself, and the real mother thought of, of, the, of the baby. I mean, mothers are... Mothers are selfless. Um, I've watched Tracy go without sleep for days in order to nurse my children. You've watched your mother. You've watched your wife. I've watched her many times give of her time, her pleasure, even her needs because her children need something. No doubt in my mind she'd lay down her life. For a child, and I think that's exactly what this first woman is willing to do. And the other one is blind, I think, to the fact that her life can be taken, and she's driven by by selfishness and and jealousy. Second, I think that you can see that a mother knows there's no substitutes, or knows a substitute whenever they see one. The story continues in verse 18. Look at verse 18. And it happened the third day that I'd given birth, that this woman also gave birth, and they were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. They both delivered, the real mother first, then three days later the other, and in the night you have this tragic event. And while the real mother slept, she substituted the dead baby for the living one. And when she, when she wakes up, she's horrified. I mean, can you imagine? Some of you can't imagine what it's like losing a child. Um, can you imagine doing what this other woman did? Immediately. You, you see no grief in here. You see grief from the other woman. You see, no grief from the one who switched the baby. She just immediately takes the substitute. Shows how self-preserving she was. And the real mother, she's horrified. I will never forget seeing my neighbor in West Virginia whenever we lived at Red House. And I was outside in my driveway doing something. It was a beautiful Spring, summer day, the sun was shining. I think I had the water hose. I don't remember. Might have been washing my truck. And she just comes running out of her door, front door. And I mean, you know, it's just like there's very little yard, maybe from 
from you know me to to Warney and and then there's the road and then the houses right on the other side. So I mean you may have 50 yards from door to door or less. And she comes busting out the door screaming, you know, my baby, my baby. And and then by the time I hear an ambulance coming down the down the street and you could see where the main road was when the ambulance came and and I'm, what is going on? Well, the ambulance drives right by, and then I figure out that she's wanting the ambulance, so I flagged them down, and they, and they came back, and, and she's just pacing outside, and, and is frantic, and the paramedics go in the house, and you just remember seeing this, this big man, paramedic, running out with this baby, and was just laying in, in, in its arm, in his arm, and, and it was, it was lifeless, and and I immediately began to pray for the woman, and the child was already dead, uh, died in the middle of the night in, in his sleep. And, and this woman didn't know the Lord, and just remember the look on her face for months after that. How did this woman in this story know it wasn't her baby? Look at verse 21. When I rose in the morning, she's telling the story, to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had, had born. She was going to feed the baby, looked at him carefully, four days old, mind you, and said, this is not my child. And the mother knows, knows her child. You, you mothers can pick your child, pick your baby out of a crowd. You can distinguish his or her cry in a nursery over the cries of, of many others. I mean, there'll be times in, in our house where it's quiet and you will hear this, this screech from the other room and I'll pause. Okay, did somebody just lose a limb or what's going on? And Tracy will say, she'll listen to the cry. Oh, it's okay. I mean, she knows whether it's a hurt cry, a mad cry, I want what I want now cry. I mean, she just knows. And there's no substitute that will deceive a mother. I mean, you love other children. But a mother loves her child, knows her child. And I would say mothers can't be substituted either. That's, that's what the other one sought to do. Look at verse 20. She rose in the middle of the night, took my son from my side while I slept, and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child. In mind, she didn't love the child. She loved herself. And she substituted herself for the real mother. She didn't just substitute the child. She substituted herself for the real mother. Now, God can put a bond in heart that goes beyond blood. Some of you in here have been adopted. Some of you have gone through the process of adoption. And the bond that God can place in the heart is supernatural. You, you mothers remember when you had your first kid? The first thing you said is, I'm never having another one, right? And the second thing you said was, after a while, I just don't know how I could love another child as much as I love this one. And then the second one comes along and you say, how amazing it is. God didn't take love from the first child and divide it between the first and the second. He gave you more love for the first and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And if you're a Maryland boy, you're the 14 and... And on and on. It wouldn't matter the number. God has the ability to do that. 
God can put such a bond in the heart when it's necessary. But this woman did it due to jealousy and selfishness. And you can see that in the end of the story. Look at verse 26. It's the end of the story. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son and said, My Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. There is the x-ray of her heart. Her attitude was, if I can't have something, no one else should be able to have it either. It's sad. There's no substitute for mothers. And God designed it that way. No matter what programs the country puts in place, you know how I many millions of dollars are spent every year? Billions of dollars trying to substitute for mothers? They're trying to figure out how to put body cameras on cops so you can figure out what takes place when the real issue is their breakdown of the home and that there's nobody there. Why do you think everybody went, went so, so wild in praise of that one mother that when she figured out was her child was out there rioting, took him to the woodshed as my mother did many times because she loved him. Nothing's working. The only thing that works is, is what God puts in place. And no court rulings a country makes, nothing will replace godly mothers, especially not immoral so-called fathers because mothers can't be substituted. I think the third one that you see here is is the heart of a true mother is, is they're willing to fight for their children. I think if you look at, you know, they, they'll risk their safety for their child, they know substitutes, there is no substitutes, and they'll fight. I mean, not only does this mother, at verse 22 and 23, look at verse 22 and 23, not only is she willing to come before the king, put herself at risk, but, I mean, this is a heated dispute. Then the other woman said, no, but the living son is is mine and the dead one is yours. And the first one says, no, the dead one is your son and the living one is mine. I mean, this is not, this is, a, this is an argument. She's fighting this woman. She's saying, you're lying. And I, I can, can't imagine that the look on her face is, is just, well, you know, you should believe my story and, and not hers. I mean, King, this is my son. And the real mother says, oh, no, it's not. She's already put herself at risk, and now she's, she's battling. She's fighting. I think fighting for your child is typically directed, or we get the, the thought that it's directed toward men in Scripture because the Bible says that you men are to be protectors and providers, but, but it applies to moms as well. Um, the one thing that you don't want to run into in, in the woods is a bear with cubs. The one thing that you don't want to cross is a mother whenever it comes to her children. And a mother fights for her child. Maybe not fist fights, but they have their children's ear. They care for them, they nurture them, and they shape them, they shape their hearts. And whenever you're doing that, you're fighting for the soul of your child. You're fighting for their mind, for their heart. And you have to do that. Because here the enemy is clear. It's, a, it's another woman trying to steal this baby. This baby doesn't even know what's going on. But 
You just have to fight for your child because Satan hates your child. How many times in Scripture do you find Satan killing the innocent all the way back in Exodus in the time of Jesus? He hates your children. Sin tempts them to stray. The world calls them to embrace a better way, a, a, an alternative to godliness with the lies that, that all of their dreams and desires will be fulfilled if you just follow the ways of the, of the world. And you're standing between them and those decisions. And you're standing in a position, in a place where they're young and, and they're impressionable. And you can teach them rightly. You can nurture them. And you, you, you throw yourself between them and the foes because they can't fight for themselves. I mean, the idea that, that, that they're going to learn it on their own is, you know, without a God is, is just is foolish and deadly. I mean, the Bible uses the word trained. Children are trained. It means walked with, led, guided, protected. And, and you know, we've, I've said it before, your family's dysfunctional. My family's dysfunctional. We're all dysfunctional because we're all sinners. It's true. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a biblical model to strive for. It doesn't mean that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that God can't do anything because we're so messed up. And that's the whole point of the gospel. We're so messed up that we need a Savior, but when we find a Savior, then He leads us to go in the right direction. And we're conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, by His power. Yes, by His Word. But, but you're the one that does that. I mean, you take steps and, and actions. and Your life matters. What you say matters. I mean, I understand it doesn't seem like they're listening to you. But they are. And even if they, it doesn't seem like the fruit comes up whenever they're 18 or 20 or whenever it is, and you have some that please you and some that don't, the, the life, their life is not over. You don't know the end of the harvest. I mean, there may be things stunning the growth that's there. But in the end, God can bring up things that just seem hopeless because God is a God of, of hope. And it's not just what they hear. It's what they see. They see what's a priority. I mean, you, you can't tell your children God's important and not show He's important, whether you're, whether you're a mother or a father. I mean, you can't tell them to love others and then let them listen to you tear other people down at the dinner table or in the home. If you want church to be important to your children, church has to be important for you. I mean, those priorities matter. It's not just what's taught, but it's also what's what's caught. And you hear that, and your heart, like my heart, begins to go, wow, I, you know, I failed here, and I failed there, and, and you say, oh, I wish I would have been a, a, a better mother, wish I would have been a mother like that, I wish I was a better mother now so I could teach those kids. It's not in this passage, but do you know who Solomon's mother was who gave him the words of Proverbs 31? It was Bathsheba. The model of motherhood. <laughs> you know what God can do with a life that's, that the world throws on the trash heap of, of sin and judgment? God can take it and redeem it. God can bring a Solomon out of some really ugly circumstances. God's not done with you. Today is another day. You have to fight. Fight for your own soul and fight for your children. 
And I think probably the most significant, which is why it, the story ends with it, the fourth indicator is that, is that a mother will sacrifice out of, out of love for their child. And here, this mother is willing to sacrifice what is the ultimate for her, what she's already proven that she'll give her own life for, what she's already proven that she knows the substitute of, what she's already proven she'll fight for, she's willing to give up for the child. So verse 24, The king said, Bring me a sword. And so they brought a sword before the king. And the king says, Divide the living child in two. Give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living, notice that, the woman whose son was living spoke to the king. And look at what the narrator tells us. The Holy Spirit tells us, For she yearned with compassion, with love for her, for her son. And she said, O Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill it. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours. And so the king gives his judgment and answers and says, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill it, she is his mother. There is the definitive judgment. There's the true mother. As powerful as motherhood is to move a mother, to be selfless, to, to fight for her child, this woman would sacrifice her motherhood to save her child. Out of the French Revolution came a story of a mother who wandered through the woods for three days with two children, surviving on roots and anything else she could scrounge. And on the third day, she heard some soldiers approaching and quickly hid herself and the children behind some bushes. The sergeant in charge noticed the movement, and so he prodded the bushes to see what was stirring behind them. And when he saw the starving woman and her children, he had compassion on them and immediately gave them a loaf of brown bread. And the mother took the bread eagerly and broke it in two pieces and gave one piece each to two of her, to two of her children. And the sergeant noted she kept none for herself. And the soldier asked, is it because she's not hungry? And no, the sergeant answered, it's because she's a mother. And the heart of a mother is the heart of sacrifice. And the very thing that means the most to her, she's willing to give to save her child. Where does such love come from? I tell you, it comes from God. It surely doesn't come from our own hearts. You remember the story where Jesus equates the love of the Father to a son coming to an earthly father and asking for bread. And he says, if your child comes and asks you for something, are you going to give him the opposite that's there? You're going to give him the opposite. If the heart of a sinner's love is so strong, how much stronger must the love of God be for you? It's so strong that he would sacrifice his only begotten son. Four indicators. They risk their own safety. They know substitutes. They fight for their children. And they sacrifice out of love 
for them. Honor thy father and mother, so it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together.